1: Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you?
0: Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing?
1: Good, Father. Thanks for being here. Father, I thought we could start tonight with a few emails, and this first one is concerning the Antichrist. This viewer writes in and says, Father Jenkins, will not the Antichrist be AI, artificial intelligence, all knowing, all powerful, faceless, godlike essence imbued into every aspect and every cell of our body and of our lives? Your thoughts there, Father? No. No, okay.
0: No, the Antichrist will be the son of perdition. He will be a human being. Will be so absolutely given over to the power of Satan, he'll be possessed, and uh, this will be uh, far, far more sinister power than any artificial intelligence that we can concoct because this will be the angelic intellect of Lucifer himself at work. Okay. So that will make and the artificial intelligence of our of our concoction, uh, just pale in comparison. Um, now that doesn't mean that the Antichrist will not use artificial intelligence against us, because it is so appropriate, isn't it, that we, as the creatures of God, should find that our own creations then turn against us, and are used to enslave us, right? Which is a kind of uh, ironic, sort of poetic uh, justice, in a sense, that um, the the creature in *Rebellion Against God*, uh, quote unquote, creates his own uh, rebellion against himself in the world. But um, but the actual intelligence driving the Antichrist will be the uh, satanic intelligence. Okay. By the way, uh, you know, that's not an idle question, though, I mean, they talk about the beast in Holland, right? Uh, the computer which is supposed to uh, track everybody in the world, right? And um, some time ago, uh, we talk, there began to be talk about using human cells, brain cells, to build computers. And kind of form memory banks of computers and, and, uh, I guess ROM, uh, and so on. So, uh, and RAM. So, uh, not that I know a great deal about this, but it, it seemed ironic that, uh, you know, if they start, and maybe this individual has kind of got that in the back of his mind. If they're going to start using human brain cells and thus concoct con- con- some kind of a, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Frankenstein like brain, right? Um that would um itself be possessed, you know. I suppose that would be kind of a blend, right? Between uh the human and the and the satanic. However, the the, the Sacred Scripture is very clear on this. Question of the Antichrist. Uh when it comes down to St. Paul's second opinion, second epistle to the Thessalonians, he really does refer to the son of perdition. And, uh, you know, a man so wicked that he will be uh, completely given to satanic mm. power. Right. Um, so I think we're actually looking at a single human being who will not be some sort of uh, an artificial intelligence caricature of Christ, but an actual human being who is just completely perverted. Okay. Um.
1: All right. Well, Father, let's uh, move on to this next email. Um, this viewer says that you recently mentioned your opportunity to use your shoulder injury for a good purpose, specifically penance, but you didn't mention the details. So, Father, could you give us some details and consider teaching us how to begin incorporating into our daily lives the penance that Jesus asks of us in St. Luke's Mm -hmm. Gospel.
0: Well, injuries tend to be rather painful and debilitating, right? And, uh, of course, we can always offer up the pain. We can offer up the pain to God in, in union with Christ's sufferings for us, right? But we realize that our Lord's sufferings for us went far beyond mere physical pain. Uh, Christ's suffering for us uh, goes much deeper than than what the body can endure in terms of the anguish of the soul. And uh, the debilitating effects of our injuries and illnesses um, can be very humbling. And that humiliation itself um, can be uh, very salutary. I mean, we, we are such that we are either going to um, humble ourselves, or we are going to be humiliated, one or the other. That's essentially the choice we have to make, because uh, due to uh, sin, we are full of pride. Pride is the first of the capital of sins, as you know. And so, every single human being is going to have to either humble himself, or the, the alternative is that he will be humiliated um contrary to his own will right um death is an ultimate humiliation you might say but then judgment goes far beyond that right especially if we're condemned um so remember with our blessed mother the uh foundational virtue of her whole life was her humility it was that humility which Major is so completely compliant with the will of God that she could be truly the mother of God and the handmaiden of the Lord at the same time, you know. Um, and so that's a, a very important lesson for us all to, all to learn. Not only the, a very important lesson, it is sort of like the ultimate lesson for us to mm-hmm. learn. And uh, injuries like this uh, and illness, too, no less so, can play an important part in um, our humbling uh, experience, right? As long as we fight it, um, we're fighting uh, it out of pride because it threatens to humble us or humiliate us. But if we can uh, f- command ourselves contrary to fallen nature, if we command ourselves out of love for our Lord to accept it and uh, to offer it to our Lord in union with his own sacrifice, then it's not a matter of something humiliating us. It's something. It's a matter of our humbling ourselves before God. Sure. And uh, what does scripture say? Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in the day of visitation. Right. Mm-hmm. I think words of Saint Paul. Right. <laughs> so uh, that's the benefit of illness and injury. And by the way, uh, what kind of. Um, the, the, tri- the, the, the third aspect of all that, which actually usually brings the illness and the energy and the injury, is old age, <laughs> okay? So, uh, we can usually find a way to offer up all three, but you don't have to be up in years in order to suffer illness and injury. So you can start practicing when you're young <laughs> by offering up the uh, the illness and injury that you have then. Sure. Uh, by the time you get to uh, the ripe old age of oh, 40 or 50, you should be pretty good at it. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, Father, uh, well, let's keep moving on through these emails then. Uh, this next one is concerning exorcists. So this viewer says that I was wondering if Father Malachi Martin and Father Gabriel Amorth were true priests, and if so, were their exorcisms valid? Also, are there any Sedevecantist exorcists? I know that Bishop Robert McKenna was one, and I was wondering if there are any left.
0: Well, Father Amorth um, died at the age of 94, 95, Mm -hmm. a few years ago. He certainly was ordained in the traditional rite. He would have been validly ordained, and he would have been a true exorcist. He would have... um, on his way to the priesthood, uh, received the Minor Order of Exorcist, mm-hmm. uh, which was done away with only in the early 70s, basically, right? About, about the year 1970. Uh, so, um, the same with Father Malachi Martin. I mean, he, he would have been ordained uh, before the change in the in the rite of uh, ordination, and so he would have been validly ordained, and would have had the powers also uh, that come with ordination, and with the ordination to the uh, the, the order of exorcist, the minor order. Uh, as far as uh, Father McKenna, uh, who I personally knew, uh, um, unfortunately, he um, he kind of made himself an exorcist. He styled himself an exorcist. Uh, generally, exorcists are, are commissioned to exercise the order of exorcist uh, by higher authority in the Church, right? But um, nowadays, you know, anyone who has that power from the traditional Church, you know, in the, in the exorcist, or through the priesthood, I should say, um, should be willing, and in a state of soul, Prepared really to um, say be gone Satan," and try to help those in need, but um, I've I've seen parts of tapes, I guess, recordings of these uh, um, alleged exorcisms, and uh, I find them not very edifying. With, with Father McKenna, honestly, you know. I I pray he saved his soul. Unfortunately, he. He threw his lot in with the took bishops and had him and wanted being consecrated as a took bishop, which yeah. I cannot accept as being Catholic. But in any case, um, the idea of him, uh, you know, going after a werewolf or uh, being so terrified by the snarling of some woman he's exercising that he goes and hides behind the altar. I mean, these are are not just legends but i mean i think they're pretty well verified that this is happened. it just sounds awfully peculiar to me you don't find things like that in the accounts given by father Amor through all those years of exorcism at least i never did not that i'm an expert on the subject of course but um i just didn't see any parallels to that so um i just find it all rather rather peculiar and i um Well, I better—I guess I better stop there.
1: So, are there any true Catholic exorcists left today?
0: Well, I mean, any any traditional Catholic priest, right, Um, validly ordained priest, always receives the power of exorcism. (laughs) Excuse me. I mean, even if uh, it's included in the power of the priesthood. Uh, now, you know traditionally, the Church had the the seven <clears throat> holy orders, seven <clears throat> sacred orders, um, beginning with the four minor orders, right? After tonsure, one would be ordained, a porter, then a lector, then an exorcist, and then an acolyte, right, as he approached closer and closer to the altar, and the three major orders, the subdiaconate, the diaconate, and then the priesthood itself, right? And uh, the Novus Ordo did away with the minor orders of uh, Porter and Exorcist. They just erased them, right? And the major order of the Septuagint as well. But nonetheless, if someone is validly ordained a priest, he does have all of the powers that th- these are shares in the priestly powers, all of them, right? And so they are gradually bestowing the powers of the priesthood to those who are working toward ultimately receiving the power of the real, over the real body of Christ and the real blood of Christ in the Mass. Um, so anyone who's validly ordained a Catholic priest would have the power to be an exorcist. Okay. okay. Of course, not everybody might be suitable for the task. Yeah. I, I mean, who would dare come forward and say, well, I'm suitable for the task, Um, uh, you know, squaring off against the satanic power is not something one does willingly, one does not do it uh, out of a sense of bravado, one does it only out of a sense of charity, and the need to come to the rescue of of a dear soul that's being held captive. Um, So I don't know anyone relishes the idea if if one were to have interviewed Father and ask him uh, If he looks forward to the next exorcism, I think he would probably say no (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then he probably uh, Would consider the question to be kind of nonsensical anyway because it wasn't a matter of that for him it was a matter of uh, I mean, in in one sense, he actually might have said yes. Insofar as um, any opportunity he has to drive the devil out,
1: mm-hmm.
0: he will um, readily accept that. Sure. You know. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that has to be the spirit of uh, anyone who would engage in that okay. exorcism. Mm-hmm. Want to uh, beat back that 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 satanic power. Okay.
1: The next email, Father, from a you in Canada, who is currently reading the book, The Glories of Mary by St. Mm-hmm. Alphonsus Liguri. And uh, in the book, she says, I came across the little rosary of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And after this title, there is a notation that this is said in some churches. I've never heard of this little rosary of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and I'm wondering if it is valid today.
0: Well, I, I think that this might be referring to the chaplet. You know, the little rosary is not a term that I'm familiar with. Okay. Um, but I think every Catholic has heard of what, what is known as a chaplet, which is basically a little rosary. Um, and so there is a, a chaplet of the Immaculate Heart there. There's a chaplet of the Immaculate Conception. I think that uh, the prayers for that were composed by St. John Birchman's. Um and they they were probably used for private devotions initially, but then were approved by the church um for private prayer, you know. So um but I really couldn't tell you more than that. I am just assuming that she's referring to a, a chaplet of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and yes, that is still recognized, it is still available, and it is still being prayed by okay. people.
1: Father, I wanted to get to this email that we've had uh, for some time now. It's from a viewer all the way over in Ireland. And uh, they recently came across our channel. And uh, they say here that um, I have been deeply troubled. And they said, uh, in one of your videos, you say that the Novus Ordo Mass is not valid. I know that many abuses have occurred since its introduction and that it has Protestantized the liturgy. But I always understood that while it is not listed, it is still the valid sacrifice of Calvary. Incidentally, the word sacrifice is mentioned twice in the New Liturgy. If it is not valid and Novus Ordo priests are not validly ordained, which you also assert, then most Catholics for the last 50 years have been without the grace of the sacraments and have been effectively cut off from heavenly support. I am utterly abhorred by the fact that none of my sins and those of my fellow Novus Ordo Catholics have not been forgiven for the past 50 years. Uh, She goes on to say that it is not possible that the Novus Ordo Mass is still valid. Despite all the changes, there is still the unbroken line of authority and ministry from the apostles. And the words, this is my body and this is my blood are still recited over the bread and wine. So, Father, what's your response to all of this?
0: Well, we've responded to every point there in the past, haven't we? Yes, and of course, it's misrepresenting what I've said. Um, one has to listen a little more carefully, really, clearly, because uh, I have not come out and said that the Novus Ordo is intrinsically invalid, nor have I said that uh, Novus Ordo priests are, uh, you know, absolutely necessarily invalidly ordained. Right, They're the new rite of ordination. I have said there is enough uh, doubt about these things, about the validity, that uh, Catholics should not partake in them, right? Because they are uh, very highly doubtful, and even if they, even even if not, um, they're not Catholic. They're they're not Catholic rites. Uh, The Novus Ordo was not invented to be a Catholic rite. It was. Invented to be uh, a replacement for the Catholic mass is what it really was meant to be an ecumenical service Again, we've answered everything that she brings up there Uh, The word sacrifice does appear in the Novus Ordo liturgy. Yes, I know we've said that before But it's always mentioned as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving remember uh, just as with prayer There are four ends of sacrifice, right? Praise, adoration, that is, thanksgiving are two of them. Contrition or reparation for sin and supplication are two others, okay? And uh, what makes the holy sacrifice of the Mass the holy sacrifice of Calvary, what makes the Mass the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, is that it is not merely a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. In fact, to say that it it is merely a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving would make one a heretic. Uh, The Council of Trent condemned that proposition explicitly. And uh, the Novus Ordo Mise um, refers to itself as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving only. It has removed from the offertory the, uh, the, the very concept of this Novus Ordo uh, being offered as a sacrifice of reparation for sin which is the very essence of the traditional Catholic offertory prayers of the True Mass Right? They have been deliberately removed from the New Mass uh, Even when they use the so-called Eucharistic Prayer 1 Right, which is supposedly the Roman Canon. They've still got that Novus Ordo Offertory, which has completely erased the statement of the intent to offer a sacrifice of reparation for sin, and uh, that is very significant. And that really affects whether or not, well, what this is: is it a mass or is it a memorial service? You know the very first definition of the new Mass, the official definition came in the general instruction on the Novus Ordo or ordo, uh, right there, the Novus Ordo say, and in uh, part two, uh, section seven there, or paragraph seven, it says, you know, the, the Lord's Supper parentheses or Mass, close parentheses, is the gathering together of the people of God under the presidency of the priest to celebrate the memorial of the Lord. That is a Protestant service. That is the definition of a Protestant service. And and it goes on to say, therefore, uh, in the the, the liturgy, in the Mass, uh, our Lord's words apply especially to the local community where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So they talk about a spiritual presence of Christ. but They're not talking about his actual body and blood, soul and divinity there on the altar in such a way that it shows forth the death of Christ until he comes, as St. Saint, Saint Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapters, 10 and 11. So, uh, I mean, I realize this dear lady has an emotional attachment to this, and who doesn't, you know? You can understand that. I mean, this is a, this affects everyone very deeply. But we've got to look at this thing in the eyes of Catholic teaching, and the notice so in the eyes of Catholic teaching does not hold up well. And if nothing else, I would just ask her... Uh, you know, if she sees the way that they, they, they treat the um, what's supposed supposed to be the blessed sacrament, if she sees the way they treat that and abuse that, not only outwardly, but inwardly. I mean, what what they putting their hands out, receiving uh, the host uh, without having confessed in weeks, days, months, years, who knows? Uh, living together, and but they're with or without their marriage annulments, and so, on. I mean, when she sees the sacrileges that are committed, she has a choice to make as to which is the greater evil, that the novus ordo be valid or that it be invalid. I mean, if it's horrible, I agree to think that it, that's nothing but just glorified bread they're they're basically tossing around up there and handing out to people. Uh, that's a horrible thing. It's like a, a communion service, right? Which is just the uh, bread symbolizing the body and body of Christ, right? But it, it's a thousand times worse if it really is the body and blood of Christ that they are abusing up there. That is a that is truly the greatest sacrilege. Sure. Uh, following the the very uh, crucifixion of our Lord, that would be truly the greatest sacrilege. Sure. Um, so um, you know the, the problem is with the sort we have that dilemma. And um, again, you know she's jumping to conclusions. She's putting words in my mouth and thoughts in my mind. She's just interpreting in her interpreting these things. She's not really going to what I say, but what she thinks I mean. People do that a lot. Does that mean her sins are not forgiven? But um, you know, God can forgive and just on the basis of her contrition. He could give her perfect contrition, you know. If he so chose. So I'm not questioning her contrition for his sins, you know. In raising the question as to whether or not you know, some or all of the of the clergymen she's going to for confession are valid or invalid praise. you know, uh, ma- the matter of her receiving absolution validly is not identical with the question of her being forgiven her sins, she or other people. Um, so we, we have to make some necessary distinctions here you know, and not draw conclusions that are unwarranted.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, Father, uh, if we have the time, I wanted to briefly go through a couple points of a quick interview. Mm-hmm. Um, from Father David Palerani, the Superior General of the Society of St. Pius X. This interview was uh, just recently mm-hmm. published on their website. It is, uh, I guess, originally from an Austrian newspaper. It was published mm-hmm. on Saturday, December 15th. Mm-hmm. And just a couple quick points in here, Father. Um, at, at one point in the interview, the interviewer says here that uh, Francis has made concessions. So what more are you waiting for? Mm-hmm. Father Talleyrani responds, We are waiting for what every Catholic asks of the Church at baptism. Faith. Divine revelation has now ended, and it is the duty of the Pope to transmit faithfully the deposits of faith. The Pope must therefore put an end to the terrible crisis that has shaken the Church for the last 50 years. This crisis was triggered by a new conception of the faith, centered on the subjective experience of each individual. It is thought that each individual is solely responsible for his faith, and can freely opt for any religion without distinction between error and truth. But this contradicts objective divine law." So, Father, what do you make of this point where the interviewer says, what more are you waiting for? And he says, we are waiting for faith. Would that not imply that Francis does not have faith?
0: I would say it certainly implies that. Uh, We're waiting for Francis to uh, (laughs) teach the faith. Uh, well, I mean, what could it, one could interpret that to mean? Francis is is not teaching anything, and we're waiting for him to get around to teaching faith, or he's teaching things contrary to the faith, and we're waiting for him to return to the faith, to teach the faith. You know, <clears throat> so uh, that doesn't really make it very clear. But when when the interviewer asked him, "What are you waiting for?" Mm-hmm. Um, is the interviewing actually asking Father Palliani, "Go ahead, rejoin Francis," uh, but you know there, there's a reason why you don't. Right. And 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 uh, Father Pagliari says the pro- the obstacle is faith, that they have faith, they don't have the faith, and we do, or they have a different faith. Is that what he's implying there? That,
1: that's my understanding. It seems well.
0: to be, because recent conversations there between the Society of St. Pius X and uh, the Vatican have really resulted in the mutual understanding and statement that it really is a matter of doctrine that separates them, right? Right. So maybe that's what Father Palladirani is referring to. It is a matter of doctrine that separates them. But, um, you know, again, I wish he would be clearer in in making it clear that what Francis is doing is not only just not teaching the faith; it's not just a matter that he's failing to teach the faith. It goes beyond that. Okay? Right. Uh, he is what he is teaching is contrary to the faith, the ordinary magisterium of the Church, and certainly, at least implicitly, the extraordinary magisterium of the Church. Uh, and so. Um, um, you know, again, Father Palerona has to has to really state the gravity of the problem. Uh, <laughs> you know, this conjures up images of the, the priests of the Society of Saint Pius X, kind of just in the waiting room of the novitiate, you know, waiting uh, for their number to be called and say, "Okay, you know, uh, time for faith, uh, your turn." You know, and to have the idea that they're sort of just uh, in the waiting room, waiting for Francis to decide to come back to the faith or teach the faith, mm-hmm. um, it, it it doesn't really um, state the gravity of the situation as it is.
1: And, and Father, I think also that waiting game, that waiting attitude that they have, it just seems so naive because he describes right here. I think perfectly describes the problem of their concept of faith totally different. It's not just un-Catholic, it's It's, anti-Catholic. He describes modernism, the subjective experience of each individual. It's Mm. worse than just not Catholic, it's anti-Catholic. It's Mm. the exact opposite
0: of Catholicism. Well, you know, the the Society of St. Pius X famously, over the last so many years, adopted a a position of being somewhat passive toward the Novus order and not attacking it for the evil that it really is. And all of this for the sake of kind of rebranding and, uh, you know, fashioning a new image, of kind of a smiley face image for the world, you know, that we have the traditional mass, and isn't that enough? Isn't that wonderful? And it is obviously a great thing, you know, no doubt about it. But the fact is... Um, you know, the, the enemies of the faith need to be confronted. And uh, the uh, errors against the faith need to be denounced and exposed. And this idea of, again, we're waiting. We're just waiting for this to happen. Well, yeah, I guess they are. They're just waiting for Francis to wake up one morning Catholic. You know? <laughs> Maybe he'll just get up and put his Catholic socks on one morning and he'll take care of it all. But in the meantime, the rest of us are not just waiting, you know, we're just not waiting for that. We're actually still pointing out the errors and trying to, trying to rescue the people from the Novus Ordo. Uh, nova sordo is a sinking ship, you know. Yep. As a matter of fact, I mean, um, you know, this, um, I don't want to take us away from this. I think you might have other questions about this, but... Uh, Remember, uh, the, the Cardinal of Chicago, the Nova Serva Cardinal of Chicago, Blaze Subic? Supich, yes, right? yes sir. Because uh, Francis is basically a, a cat's paw in this country. He's so like a right hand man, right? He's spokesman in this country. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when Francis was denounced by Archbishop Vigano as knowing what was going on with this Cardinal McCarrick and his depredation of seminarians. And Francis responded, saying, I will not say a word about this. I'll let the press take care of it for me. And later on, this uh, Colonel Subich said, We're, we, we cannot go down that rabbit hole. Remember that? Because Francis has too many more important Catholic things to do, like fight global warming and fight the global immigration battle and so on. Yep. Well, you know, I couldn't help but think, go down the rabbit hole... It's like the whole church has been falling down that rabbit hole since Vatican II. I mean, we're in the rabbit hole, you know? And, uh, you know, we're at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. It's Francis, I mean, he's the Mad Hatter. And, uh, I mean, Blaise Supich, he might as well be the March Hare. Uh, Cardinal Tobin might as well be the, the Caterpillar. You know, The who are you? And uh, I think Cardinal of the World would make a great Cheshire Cat. You know, because even his smile is still there, even though the rest of him has just sort of disappeared. You know, Francis left him on there in Washington D.C. So, I mean, we're down that rabbit hole right now. We're trying to get out of it. That's what we're trying to do. But um, and um, you know, Father Pallieri and and others who would be traditional Catholic priests have to face that fact too and realize we've got our we've got to. Um, we're engaged in a fight for the faith. We're not not just this is not just a waiting game. We're not trying to outlast the modernists. or Wait until they. Well, wait for what, right? <laughs> wait until they have a change of heart. Um, no, no, we've got to rescue those we can.
1: Sure. Well, Father, just one more point in here. It's a rather short email, but I wanted to mention this as well. The uh, interviewer asks, to what extent can the Society of St. Pius X in turn show itself conciliatory towards the Pope? And Father Pagliorani replies, the Priestly Society of St. Pius X is deeply attached to the successor of Peter, even when it opposes the errors of the Second Vatican Council. However, we are deeply distraught by a fundamental characteristic of the current pontificate, a completely new application of the concept of mercy. It is reduced to a panacea for all sins without pushing for a true conversion, the transformation of the soul by grace, mortification, and prayer. In his post-senatal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, the Pope gives all Christians the possibility to decide, case by case, according to their personal conscience, the questions of morality and marriage. This totally contradicts the necessary and clear orientation given by God's law. Father, what do you think of this when, uh, you know, of the mortgage board of errors that is Francis Father Paliarani says we are deeply distraught by the fundamental characteristic of the current pontificate a completely new application of the concept of mercy. Would you say that that is something that we should be fundamentally concerned about with Francis? Would that be your fundamental concern with him?
0: Well I think the (coughs) fundamental concern is what he mentioned earlier the modernist concept of faith right? I mean, Francis' concept of mercy follows from his concept of faith. Exactly. So, it is derived from the modernist principles, right? Um, So, I think what he's calling the fundamental problem is actually not. (laughs) It is derived from the fundamental fundamental problem, a consequence of it. I I mean, I agree that this is Francis' thought, this is teaching, and so on, and it's very evil. The dubia that were presented by the uh, four modern cardinals back then, the novus of the cardinals, yeah. uh, raised that point, you know. And I think everybody understands, well, at least those who still have the faith, that Francis's concept of mercy is contrary to the Church's whole understanding of the economy of salvation yeah. and contrary to the gospel um, of our Lord. And, um, but, um, you know... It's a little convoluted that last question, you know. Uh, what can you do that would be conciliatory, right? Mm-hmm. Conciliatory. I mean, I don't know who the questioner is there, but he's asking, "What can you do to show your goodwill to Francis?" I think fundamentally, you should show your goodwill the way our Lord showed his goodwill, by telling telling the truth, the right. whole truth, and nothing but the truth, uh, even if it, it's if it's speaking to. Um, let's say, uh, Pharisees or publicans, right? Or, uh, or fishermen, tell the truth. Uh, uh, just kind of groveling and being obsequious, and um, even saying, you know, that they are uh, respectful and humbly devoted to the, what when, do when you say exactly, the successor, the, the vicar of Christ, the successor, Peter, and then calling it it yeah no, you know I, I'm I mean, not, not I sure think if that's got a little mixed up maybe with the with the Shush. linguistics of it all
1: right yeah.
0: But I mean because the, the, you know we're talking about an individual person
1: like right a,
0: a, a, a man, and we're not talking about the Holy See here. Right. The devotion is to the Holy See itself. The devotion is to the office of the Holy See and to the individual only insofar as he represents the Holy See right or that he that he is the vicar of Christ on earth. But you have a man now who claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth. Actually, more than that, he claims to be the successor of Christ <laughs> on earth, as though he has Christ-like powers to change what Christ did. I mean, this is the very nature of the Antichrist, to be able to veto Christ and supersede Christ and change what Christ himself did, right? Well, Francis uh, essentially is trying is doing that. You know, He might not have said it word for word, but he has said it. Um, um, that uh, he, he has the power to uh, be inspired by the spirit of surprises, he says, to change Catholic teaching throughout the years and, uh, in a sense, supersede Christ. So, uh, I mean, the question here is Is, is uh, Father Padirani devoted to Francis? Is he devoted to the papacy? If he's devoted to the papacy, then he should be devoted to the papacy as, as it was established by our Lord and has been lived by the Church century after century after century, which is something that Francis is, is attacking. Right. Is wants to destroy, actually. Sure. Even the very concept of that, Francis wants to destroy. So uh, this is something that has to be opposed to, be, to show oneself conciliatory toward that is scandalous. So, I think uh, he has to make it very clear that... I, I, I mean, I, I would have answered those questions very differently. I think you might get, detect that, right? <laughs> That's right. But fine. I would say, conciliatory, conciliatory. To what extent does Francis show himself conciliatory to the true Catholic faith? To what extent does he show himself conciliatory to the true Catholic Mass? Uh, you know, how would I, why would I show myself conciliatory to a man who attacks the things that I believe in right. as the traditional Catholic faith? So, um, so no, I, I cannot be it, would be, it would be treasonous to be conciliatory toward that. I have to oppose him, right? Um, you know, when, when Peter was giving, I mean, let's take the best case scenario when Peter was giving scandal, um, Um, in the days of the Apostles, right? Paul didn't exactly, St. Paul didn't show himself to be conciliatory by his intervention there, right? But he was, I mean, it was charity that motivated him. Charity toward St. Peter, too. But in the eyes of the world, that was not conciliatory. True. And um, so we have to be very careful. that This is part of the world we're getting. We're conciliating toward everything. Now we're conciliating towards sin. We're conciliating toward blasphemy. We're supposed to hear blasphemies. We're supposed to witness sacrileges and just keep smiling because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, make everybody think we really do like them. And we're on their side. So you can't object to virtually anything they do. So that, that question to me is a false question. I think it should have been denounced as such.